Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. Like medieval kings, the rulers of the internet giants like Google, Amazon, Apple and Facebook have few constraints on their power. There's increasing concern about how to rein in these digital empires and the rising economic, social and political inequality that their power creates. In this episode of the podcast, I interview Vili Leton-Virta, who is Professor of Economic Sociology and Digital Social Research at the University of Oxford. Vili has recently published a book on this subject called Cloud Empires. Listen in to the next 40 minutes to hear how we lost touch with the optimism of the early internet, how the data giants gained their enormous power, and what we can all do about it. Vili, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Thank you, Paul. So my name is Vili Leadonvirta. That's a Finnish name. I'm from Finland originally. And uh, I'm professor of economic sociology and digital social research at the Oxford Internet Institute, University of Oxford. And basically, I, I do research on the digital economy, broadly understood. I've been doing a lot of research on digital marketplaces, and uh, I've also been following Bitcoin and the whole uh, crypto world since 2010. Um, And I've just published a new book called Cloud Empires, how digital platforms are overtaking the state and how we can regain control. Yep. Thank you for that uh, introduction. And I've, I've been reading your book over the last week. It's a very uh, interesting read. I found a, a lot of insights into what's been going on over the last 25 years. But for, for the benefit of me and for our listeners, could you perhaps start by, by explaining how we went from this kind of an utopian idea that we can, most of us who started using the Internet in the 1990s can probably remember? Uh, so, you know, what, what went, how do we go from the the utopianism of that era to what you've described in yeah. quite dark terms in certain parts of the book. We can go on to talk yeah. about that, but it's a kind of, we've, we've, we've reached a kind of imperial stage where you have these uh, entities that are really above the national states and difficult to control. Yes. Well, isn't that the case? And in the 90s, we were still full of hope about how the internet would liberate us from uh, oppressive institutions and top-down authority and John Perry Barlow issued the uh, or a declaration of the independence of cyberspace and so on. And uh, and for many years after that, still Silicon Valley technologists were um, saying that the Internet will and digital technologies will liberate us and they will they will empower individuals and they will uh, eliminate gatekeepers. But then, you know, fast forward to 2022, uh, we have these digital giants uh, largely based in in the United States and in 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 Beijing and Shanghai that have become some of the biggest gatekeepers in history in terms of access to markets and in in terms of uh, regulating and, and controlling those markets. Yeah, in your book, you give a number of examples of you know how the internet giants of today have you know the, you talk about their origins and how they've evolved. At what point did those? Perhaps we could start with the case of eBay because there's a very interesting chapter yeah. on, that, on that on that firm. Um, how did how did eBay go from being a kind of a community that was supposed to police itself to yeah. uh, eBay then starting to take 
active control over the flow of information and dictating to people what they could and couldn't do. So, so eBay was founded by Pierre Amidiar, who was a French-Iranian uh, immigrant to the U.S. And uh, he, he believed in the power of markets to provide opportunities for people who are sort of in the margins and coming from the outside. But he'd seen firsthand in Silicon Valley how uh, basically insiders had uh, privileged access to information and opportunities. So he was one of many people at the time, this was uh, mid-90s, who thought that, well, couldn't we use the internet to create an economy, to create marketplaces where uh, everyone had the same opportunities and it was all open and egalitarian and, and so on. And um, so he created this this uh, online auction site. He called it Auction Web at first. Um, and he was also a self-identified libertarian. So he didn't uh, believe in sort of top-down authority. Um, he thought that markets could be underpinned by community. and. Um, but what what essentially happened was, you know, at first, you know, he gets he manages to attract a few few people on the website, and they start listing items for sale and and bidding on them. But as it grows a little, then some people start behaving opportunistically, either outright scamming or just being forgetful and you know not sending the goods or or sending something different from what was agreed or not paying and so on. And then people would go to Omidyar and say, hey, there, there, there are these problems, this fraud going on in your, your marketplace. You've got to do something about it. And he was all like, no, man, you know, I don't believe in authority. <laughs> let, let people sort it out themselves. But he thought, you know, maybe he could help people sort it out themselves a bit. So he created the world's first digital reputation system. So he created a system for people to rate each other um after a transaction and one of the things he had to do to enable that was to ask people to register in in the the site's database create a user account can you imagine that in the 90s we still did uh, you know websites didn't track you they didn't put you in their database um and you could do business on the internet uh, anonymously without without uh, uh, even creating a user account it's, it hard to, bit, it's hard to remember yeah, that that's the case. Today. But yeah. it was a bit controversial then at the time when Pierre Remedio said, hey, please, could you register in my database so that I can assign the reputation scores to you? People are like, mm, I'm not sure. That sounds a lot like what government's doing, you know, putting us into databases. And a lot of the internet users were quite sort of libertarian in their outlook at the time. But nevertheless, uh, they did that. Um, and then other, you know, things, the market that allowed the market to grow even more. Um, then as it grew, other problems started coming up, such as, you know, people starting to sell uh, fake goods, fake medicine that appeared to work correctly, but some of the time could kill you. Uh, and uh, the trouble with the reputation system as a means to regulate uh, commerce is that it assumes that people are accurately able to assess the value of the goods that they are buying. But this is only true for some goods. Then there are goods like uh, pharmaceuticals that, in fact, uh, the consumer is not in a position to assess whether it's it's working correctly or whether it's actually killing you. And so then he had to create uh, further systems like like regulations and start saying, okay, you're not allowed to sell prescription pharmaceuticals or only certain, only licensed people are allowed to sell certain types of items. 
and so on and so on, and, and, and then start uh, at policing the platform more and more until, you know, you fast forward uh, 10 years, he's essentially rebuilt all the institutions of the state for regulating uh, a market. And from and there, it was a short step to telling people what to do. Uh, so I noticed yeah. in your book that, that they, eBay started to, t to give its sellers performance targets and mm. tell them that if they, didn't, uh, if they didn't keep selling at that particular rate, then they were, they were going to lose certain privileges on the platform. So it was a very short step to having that kind of top yeah. monitoring to telling people what to do. That's right, because first, once you start, you sort of create this uh, market liberal economy where the uh, function of the, the authority, the purpose of the authority is to just um, enforce contracts and property rights and let people do whatever they want to. But since you're collecting all that data, then, you know, if you're the marketplace uh, organizer or owner, you think, well, might as well nudge them a little bit to make better decisions. Because some of, some of them seem to be making pretty stupid decisions. We can help them out a bit, make better decisions. Um, and our competing competitors, you know, Amazon's doing that. So why can't we do that as well? And in fact, if we don't, we're going to lose out to Amazon in, in, in competition. And that sort of get escalating up until the point that now, if you talk to some of the sellers on eBay, they they say things like, um, "This is Siberia. Uh, it, this is I. You know, you do what you're told, or you get beaten hard." Yeah. Because they are now micromanaging sellers, uh, telling them this is exactly how you have to perform. This is how quickly you have to respond to various things. This is how you have to package things, and this is your return. This is all the policies you have to follow. There's pages and pages and pages of policies. It's, it's re replicated this um, intense form of state bureaucracy. And it's become uh, something closer to a centrally planned economy. In right. and, 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 this, and this story that you've been describing with eBay was effectively replicated um, you know, across, I would That's right. say, all, all the Silicon Valley giants. So Amazon started off with a kind of genius idea of, of selling books and, and doing things that other bookstores couldn't do. But then, um, you know, over time, it started to once it got into a fairly dominant position, it could squeeze the the, the book the book publishers, and then when it when, when it had its own marketplace for sales of other goods, it it could you know it started to as you describe in your book, it's Amazon started to if there was a particularly successful product, it would kind of develop its own version of that to start competing against the people on its. That's, that's right. Uh, or Uber was doing it with, um, you know, it's, it started to intervene and in, in how drivers could set prices, where they could and couldn't pick up. This seems like a common theme across yes. all the internet giants. That's right. There's two things I think we need to distinguish here. One is this sort of uh, central planning that I just outlined, which the Soviets already tried to do, right? But they didn't have enough data and they didn't have enough computing capacity to actually process that data to solve that optimization problem um, and now silicon valley has orders of magnitude more data and and more computing capacity that the soviets could ever dream of so on a limited scale it's possible now that certain forms of of um, central planning are in fact now efficient which they didn't used to be um, and that's now leading these companies to introduce more and more this kind of algorithmic matching and nudging and recommendations. So that, that's one side of it. But then the other side is once you are that autocrat, you're in charge of this big economy now. 
Um, Amazon has, uh, last year, it has something like in excess of $500 billion worth of goods passing through its marketplace. So this is bigger than most countries' uh, anti-GDP. And it earned something like $80 billion in, in fees from merchants for using its marketplace. In, in essence, so, so Amazon is, is now in many ways more powerful than um, some governments. And it, the, the, the leaders of these tech companies are in many ways more powerful figures than most heads of state, you could even argue. So that creates then a temptation for them to abuse that position. So instead of say, uh, just presiding over that marketplace in a manner where, you know, let, uh, let um, people do business and let them profit from that, well, let's start extracting some of that value for ourselves by starting to hike up those fees, essentially hiking up the taxes, quote unquote, uh, as, as you know, all of these platforms have have increase the the taxes that they charge on on merchants on um the the businesses that use the platforms many many times over the years and then also start bending the rules of the marketplace to benefit themselves uh, to the detriment of of smaller businesses yeah, you talk about the, their ability to tax, and and they they also have the ability to take arbitrary decisions, which can discriminate against uh, users of their own platforms. You give a, a very good example in your book about uh, Apple's decision to to stop yes. um, you know certain app developers from selling um, basically templates for making apps to to third parties, yes. and that, how that affected a guy who was running a very successful business in in California, and suddenly the, the people found themselves shut off from from Apple uh, with very little warning. Uh, and now Apple didn't, I think, did reverse right. its decision to some extent, but it, it just, that's a, you give, give a very good example of how, uh, you know, how those kinds of decisions can be taken without any accountability. There are so many examples like this, but let's be clear. I mean, Apple has created a marketplace, an economy, an app economy that has, has created so much prosperity, right? In Finland, yeah. uh, I'm from Helsinki. Uh, there is now a big, app industry there's a big mobile games industry um, that is thriving on the global marketplace that apple and google have created for mobile apps so it's not like they sort of you know the way i explain it in cloud empires the book is that it's not like they captured these markets they created these markets yeah and by virtue of creating these markets they have the power to regulate them uh, now the question is: Is you know, is this a sustainable model to the future that we have the some of the largest markets in the world today are owned and and regulated solely uh, uh, for private profit and for uh, in in a, and in a way that is not accountable to yeah. the users? And I because I think besides besides any fairness and 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 sort of so that kind of considerations is probably not socially optimal either. It's probably retarding innovation. And in fact, I have some quotes from app developers. They're saying, look, we can't invest in this anymore because it's just too risky. Apple might yeah. come at any point and say, you're not allowed to do this anymore. And we know from economic history that security of property rights, predictability 
uh, of being able to earn, uh, uh, reap the benefits from your investment is key to to promoting investment and innovation. Yeah. Before we come on to you know what can be done about the current situation, let's take a, a detour into the world of money because this is new money review, and I, I you know I'm interested in in the bits of your book where you talk about you talk about we've already discussed eBay, but then there's this Pirate Bay, which is the kind of the the, the eBay equivalent for uh, for the dark market Silk Road. goods. Silk, sorry, excuse me, Silk Road, and uh, and and also cryptocurrency, which you write about in the book. You know, yes. is is this is this the same story uh, as we've been describing, but just in the world of money, or are there some distinguishing features about uh, about about the, you know, the 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 application of these ideas to, or the application of these libertarian ideas to the world of money? So the. The Silk Road story is one where it's similar to the Pyramidiar eBay story, right? So we have Ross Ulbricht, the committed uh, uh, libertarian, more sort of anarcho-capitalist. And he's all about, I want to uh, eliminate government oppression from the world by creating this voluntarist uh, marketplace. But then things kind of spin out of control. People start scamming him. Uh, people start scamming each other. And in the end, I mean, it's it's a really dramatic escalation where he ends up trying to murder people in order to to maintain order in the name yeah. of order. He says, "In my these things uh, sometimes happen to a person in my position." You know, he suddenly he's is transformed from this uh, uh, egalitarian libertarian to uh, not necessarily egalitarian, but a libertarian who does not believe in violence a pacifist into someone who is attempting to use political assassination uh, as a method of maintaining order. It's so, kind of so like, that's the, like the story of the Godfather, uh, but he could be that is, Yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, money is an element in that story insofar as on his Silk Road drug marketplace, Bitcoin is the medium of exchange. And that affords a degree of anonymity that's one of the components that he uses to create this shadow market outside the reach of of state um but the problem he runs into it's also outside his own reach and therefore people are able to to scam uh, him and others in the marketplace in a an amazing in an amazing variety of ways and order breaks down and so on. but i think the 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 biggest story then i have another chapter uh on on crypto and uh there the story is basically that um in with with money you have this same issue this sort of all, all of these platforms they are essentially raising a version of the ancient problem of political science which is that authorities protect us but who will protect us from the authorities, right? Um, and in the case of money, the, the the question is, financial institutions, they protect our money and they they, they secure transactions and, and so on, but who will protect us from the financial uh, institutions? And um, there is this uh, uh, sort of bunch of people who are especially worried about uh the role of central banks right it's a little bit conspiratorial uh the the, the sort of anti-central bank economics that uh, a lot of these people have but 
but they were especially worried about the role of, of central banks. But but the same, you know, there's also concerns about commercial banks in the financial sector and how much uh, power they have in society and so on. So, so then you have, you know, 2007, 2008, you have the great financial crisis and people get, essentially, they are, a lot of people are sold bad assets. Uh, the financial institutions that they trusted in have misled them. And this leads to a lot of people losing their savings, losing their jobs and so on. So there's a, there is a question about whether these institutions are trustworthy or not. And a lot of people go to Wall Street to protest and ask for greater uh, transparency and, and democracy in, in people, people having a say in how these institutions are run. But then you have Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin, and he's got a slightly different vision for money. So his idea is instead of democratizing the institutions that uh, watch over our money, let's get rid of those institutions altogether. Let's replace financial institutions with a distributed network, um, a peer-to-peer -peer network uh, in which the security of the assets and the transactions is guaranteed by means of cryptography and economic incentives rather than by means of a trusted uh, authority. And uh, that's then what happens is, is a long story, but uh, but through various twists and turns, we end up in a situation where we must um, uh, recognize that, in fact, the crypto industry did not uh, obsolete uh, financial institutions. In fact, one by one, it recreated all of these financial institutions. So now we're back in a situation where most people who own something like Bitcoin, the vast majority don't actually hold the keys to their own coins. They use something that looks a lot like uh, online banking to access their assets, which are held by a massive financial institution like Binance or uh, Coinbase. And the Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer network, uh, the main function it has uh, at this point is to just serve as a sort of interbank settlement network between right. these massive institutions. Right. So we've, re we've recreated the, the banking system That's as, right. as, we, as we've gone along through this experiment. And, and so we can expect, I guess, then in the next 10 years or so, we're going to see regulators and governments scratching their heads and try to work out how to apply the same kinds of rules that banks have to comply with to to the crypto exchanges. You know, we're seeing steadily, you know, a steady series of lawsuits against people who've promoted... Um, investment schemes in the form of crypto um, saying that, you know, you have to comply with the same rules. So, so we can basically expect some kind of convergence. It may be a bumpy road, but well, that's where it's heading. That's right. Yeah. And it's interesting because of course, ideologically, originally the purpose of crypto was to create this, uh, a new economy, a shadow economy beyond the reach of state institutions. Yeah. But now it's, converging and, and turning into a sort of part of uh, of uh, mainstream finance because it turns out those people still actually want to get dollars out of the 
out of yeah. the system. They, they want to be rich <laughs> in a dollar or, or sterling terms, not just in a virtual token terms. Yes, yes. And, 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 and as we've seen from the history of Bitcoin to date, if you create something with a fixed supply, uh, it becomes uh, its price is, is then you know, automatically very volatile. People speculate on it a lot and it goes up and down and all over the place and, and you can't really use it for, 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 for pricing goods or services. Exactly. I mean, the trouble is originally Bitcoin, it was meant to be a payment system. I mean, that's mm. what Nakamoto was trying to create, a peer-to-peer, peer-to-peer payment system. Payment that's, system. The, that's the name of the white and paper, yeah. That's the name of the white paper. And had it, there was a, some payment adoption. A, a vegan cafe near where I live started uh, selling uh, a vegan cheeseburgers for one, uh, one Bitcoin each. And, um, you know, there was some uh, payment adoption. But then when I went to talk to the owner of the shop, he said that actually the only people who are paying with Bitcoin are the journalists who are coming to do a story about Bitcoin. And so the, the payment use case never took off. And instead, what took off was this massive speculation, greater fool theory sort of game. And the problem is, like you say, there is no, that results in extreme volatility because there's no, so there are no fundamentals. There are no fundamentals. There is yeah. no payment use. There is no industrial use. There is there is nothing besides the speculation, and that leads to extreme speculation. In that sense, the whole crypto world is almost like this uh, platonic uh, ideal of uh, finance, where yeah. finance originally it was a means to uh, uh, direct society's resources into most efficient uses. But then as financial instruments started getting more and more complicated, there started to be questions whether it wasn't sort of getting divorced a little bit from the real economy, right? And creating these financial bubbles, which uh, had nothing to do with events in the real economy. And then almost like the final step in the evolution is the crypto economy, which doesn't even pretend to have any relationship with the real economy anymore. It's all speculation and all games. Yes, yes. And you probably need to be staring at a computer screen or your mobile screen to be in it, uh, to be participating Indeed. in it, commenting on it, and, uh, and part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, let's, um, uh, let's return to the topic of the cloud empires then you write about in your book. Um, so, you know, the, as you say, these, these um, digital empires are in many ways more powerful than the, than the national states that we, you know, the world we live in. Um, what should we do about that? Uh, I mean, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that, that, that these 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 uh, you know these entities, Apple, Google, Amazon, eBay, and so on, have created a lot of good things for us. You know, I was using my yes. Google Fit app yesterday and using the kind of the metronome on it, and I realized that there was quite you know very useful for setting a pace of a walk. But then at the same time, I realized there were they're probably associ- I mean, they're certainly associating this with my profile at Google, and you know, they probably was in future will use this for some kind of medical records or whatever, or they'll calculate my likely, likely date of death uh, from you know, from <laughs> what they know about me. I mean, these things are happening, and we. I mean, yes. we, I mean, should we not just learn to live with them and accept what's what's uh, what's happened? To some extent, yes. I mean, I'm I'm not uh, against technology, actually. Uh, I'm so I was a software developer myself twenty years ago. I during the first the dot com boom, I was a, I was a developer at a dot com, and we all had stock options, and we were very wealthy on paper until the market crashed, <laughs> and uh, things turned out different. And I actually I got interested in how 
social and economic forces shape technology and not just the other way around. That's kind of how I ended up doing a PhD in economic sociology. Then. But, um, you know, I'm not uh, uh, against technology as, as such. Um, it's, it's the concentration of economic and political power uh, that I'm worried about. There are many uh, proposals on how to address this issue. Uh, lawmakers and regulators, both sides of the Atlantic, are sort of alive to the fact that we have essentially big five tech companies uh, running uh, large swathes of, of the world economy. And um, there are... There are, there are various ideas on what to do. I mean, the, this competition policy, right? So people are saying, let's break them uh, up. Uh, there's uh, there's um, uh, public utility regulation. People are saying, let's essentially nationalize them. Let's let's put let's let's um, assign regulators who who essentially tell them what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And you know, there's pros and cons to all these approaches. Um, the, the trouble with competition, I think even competition lawyers now, I, I speak in, in with competition lawyers a fair bit. Um, they realized, because they realized that actually there's limits to what competition law can achieve. You know, things like privacy there, it's very hard for competition law to address these things. Um, and so then people are saying, yeah, public utility regulation is better. Um, trouble is to, and we use that with, with the previous generation of sort of technology giants, electric companies and railroads and so on. Yeah. And, and you know, we required them to provide equal access to, to everyone and to, to charge, cap the prices and required them to reinvest a certain amount of profits and so on. Um, but the problem is a, a, a digital platform like Amazon Marketplace is just such a complicated beast that you can't just set a few like simple regulations. Okay, this is your price cap. This is your reinvestment rate. And then you have to provide fair and equal access to it. It's much more complicated. So in practice, to do that properly, you'd need to essentially nationalize the whole platform, assign mm. a, 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 a some 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 government body to run it and the idea of course public regulation is that the, the 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 government will then run it in the interest of the public but here's the rub which uh nation is is um the one that should nationalize a transnational digital platform because all of these platforms are intensely transnational. According to uh, figures released by eBay, uh, 90% of their sellers uh, sell cross borders. According yeah. to data we scraped from Upwork, the online freelancing marketplace, 90% of the transactions cross borders. They involve the buyer and seller in two different countries. Um, Amazon Marketplace, Apple App Store, they all operate in, in close to 200 countries. And so, are you going to have they're all these big platforms i'm talking about they're all headquartered in the us the only large-ish platform company headquartered in europe is sap in waldorf germany so if 
we start nationalizing these platforms? Are we Europeans going to then find ourselves transacting on American cyber soil very quickly, you know, states department territory? And I'm not yeah. sure if that's the, the direction we want to go to. Um, so instead, what I'm um, talking about a fair bit in the book is, is well, let's, let's look at what happened in history before. This is not the first time we are in this situation. Many actual countries, states, were founded first by entrepreneurs <laughs> as, as uh, profit-making uh, enterprises. The state of Virginia was called the Virginia Company of London. And it was founded by an entrepreneur in the early 17th century. And it was funded by... Uh, it was seed funded by a couple of high net worth, indi net worth individuals, and it um, did a public stock offering to raise funds. And the business plan was to start a town uh, or two in North America, uh, hire uh, to attract some European artisans and merchants to do business there, and then to tax them and to um, ship the profits back to England. And to run the company from London via a board of directors. So it was very sort of Amazon marketplace-like model. But suffice to say, these governance arrangements did not last because over time, the artisans and merchants they started saying, "Hang on, we're you know we are um, the ones who are, who are doing all the business in this economy. We want a say in all, in how the rules are being set. You can't just arbitrarily change the rules or." Or tax us, although there were a lot of other things. I mean, the history is more complicated than that. This is slightly stylized history. And so fast forward to the present day, and the Democratic Commonwealth of Virginia is one of the constituent states of the United States of America. So against this background, it's not so inconceivable that the public institutions of the internet economy might one day also be run in a more democratic way directly by the public who use them, not through some territorial uh, nation-state government, which is in any case not positioned to represent the interests of a transnational public that uses a platform, but directly by that transnational public itself. So it's the users of the platforms, uh, the, the the merchants transacting on the platforms, the people buying and uh, and selling as, as as end users. It's those people who th you think will have to have a greater say in the governance. Exactly. And, and how is that? How is that going to come about? Because uh, if you're Jeff Bezos or um, yes. you know, his you're hardly going uh, to. You're no. not going to give up your power very. You're not easily. You're not, easily. you're not really going to. You know, he's uh, they've already got no. different share, uh, voting uh, classes of shares, and uh, that's and, right. And, and so they're not they're not going to turn around one day and offer that. Historically, what happened was um, the 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 peasants who were the most impoverished class in the the feudal economy. When they tried to rise up against the, the princes, the autocrats, they usually got crushed. But the medieval economies gradually produced this, this growing uh, middle class of burghers, of wealthy merchants and artisans 
who were well connected and they were well networked uh, well educated they had a lot of social capital they had a lot of cultural capital they they knew people and they started pushing back against the prince's power they started saying give us autonomy give us first of all give us some guarantees that you will not suddenly dispossess us you will respect our property rights you will respect our contracts you will re uh, respect our freedom to do business uh, and then all the way up to give us the right to to run autonomously this market town of ours and this happened many times throughout history in europe and um they you know they used all kinds of means or but the means to achieve that but the key was they've got organized and they spoke with one voice and they said they said to the prince you know if you know accept our demands or there'll be trouble uh, whether violence or will hire mercenaries or will bribe and sometimes they just outright bribe the prince they just raised mm. enough money to pay off the prince and buy themselves the right to run the city themselves so this happened many times in history. And now if we look what's happening today in the internet economy, we see the, the gig workers who unfortunately are uh, analogous to the, pre the peasants in my example. We see the gig workers trying to raise their voices and speak. So the, the, the delivery drivers, the warehouse workers, the, all the, the sort of the, the, the moderators, the, the data laborers, Everyone whose labor is absolutely essential for keeping the modern platform economy running, but who are in a, in a deprived and, and de-skilled and dispossessed position in this economy. They, they are trying to raise their voices, but they, the campaigns are unsuccessful. They lack the means and the resources. And I talk about this a fair bit in the book because I've studied these workers a lot and their attempts to, to resist the autocracy a lot. Yeah, it's Instead, a very powerful. It's a very powerful section of the book, if I may say, where you talk about the you know, the, the, the the um you know the the, the woman in the U.S. who's a, a peace worker on uh, Christy Amaz Milan, yeah. Amazon's uh, Mechanical Turk, and and really it's quite a phenomenal uh, story of persistence and courage that she you know she manages to, to well she tries to get her, her voice heard, uh, but it's 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 also a sobering uh, look at how people That's at right. the bottom bottom of the pyramid are actually having to work to survive or not That's barely right. survive. But That's I mean, right. is, 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 the, is the way that this power is going, are you suggesting that people can organize themselves on the platforms somehow or, or in parallel and then kind of exert the power or do they have to take their protest into, into the physical world through demonstrations and, uh, and, so and the, some kind of protest? The ones, so then, you know, the, the, the example in the book of a successful action is by the app developers. And so there are app developers whose business on Apple App Store, whose business, entire business is threatened by rule change that Apple is proposing to implement. And they organize and they start campaigning against that. Um, and they manage to put together for a formidable campaign. Uh, uh, and it has all sorts of components, right? It has an online petition, which attracts thousands of signatories. Um, it involves the CEOs of these uh, app development companies. These are mid-sized companies. Um, they're not huge companies, but they're they're not insignificant. They have resources enough to to spend on 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 sort of. Uh, um, they have resources enough to spend time on politics, doing things yeah. like 
calling up other app developers and organizing and, and writing petitions and writing the CEOs write statements and and they have time to work the media. They have contacts in the media. They start talking to TechCrunch and saying, hey, we have a problem here. TechCrunch writes stories about it. Um, they start, they even put to pull their money and hire a lobbyist who starts yeah. talking to, to Washington about it. And uh, you get a congressman writing a letter to Apple saying, hey, are you sure about this? So so they, they, they put this multifaceted campaign together, which is picking up more and more attention and more and more um, uh, 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 momentum behind it until just before the rule change that would destroy their business is meant to come into effect, Apple says, okay, you win. Uh, we're, we, you're right. We're not going to go through with this rule change. Right. Uh, you can keep your business. We ha- you have to. They did have to make some changes, but so it's a com- it's a combination of you know traditional politics approaching your representative letter writing, but also using some of the tools of the mod- modern modern digital economy, the tools of modern communications to yeah, to self organize. So and self, yeah. yeah, absolutely. But from my perspective as an economic sociologist, less important than the actual means and tools is is the fact that they have resources. Yeah. The fact that they, they they have capital, they have time, and they are not afraid of being personally destroyed if the campaign fails or if Apple decides to retaliate and boot them off the platform. Because many of these peace workers, they don't dare to raise their voice yeah. uh, lest the platform uh, operator retaliate and kick them off the platform. And they've yeah. seen that happen and then they lose their entire livelihoods. So from my yeah. perspective, it's that sort of wealth difference which makes historically as well as now all the difference. And then historically, once the the middle class, the burgers have managed to sort of um, win some democratic rights for themselves, uh, then comes in the 18th and 19th century the working class becomes very important in expanding those democratic rights and the franchise to everyone and not just the property owners. But historically, yeah. one comes before the other. And I think that attempts to sort of jump, uh, uh, skip over the the, the, the uh, gradual bourgeois democratic revolution in the digital economy is uh, may not be successful whereas these attempts by the middle class of the platform economy the app developers the successful merchants the successful streamers the the successful only fans models the the freelance software developers these are the people who if and to the extent that they organize they have a, the potential to actually start demanding to be heard and start demanding concessions now this was just a one off campaign that i described but Eventually, it can get institutionalized uh, as a sort of mechanism that the uh, platform owners consult um, this constituency before making changes because they know that if they try to, to unilaterally impose changes, they're going to be met with resistance. So might as well start kind of running by consulting the, the early changes. On. Yeah, consulting early on. And in fact, that can lead to better quality decisions as well. So this is not yeah. just a zero-sum game. We know that 
uh, more democratic, more inclusive decision-making systems actually improve the quality of decisions as well. They're not yeah. just about sharing the pie. They're also about growing the size of the pie. Yeah. Vili, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating chat. Sounds like we're going to be seeing a lot more politics with our digital economy and digital platforms in the next uh, decade I or two. Believe and I so. look, look forward very much to seeing how that uh, unfolds and uh, really, really enjoyed your book. Thank you so much, Paul. Okay. It was a great, great pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.